Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hi, welcome to this special episode of the Victory Kitchen podcast. I've entitled today's episode, Lessons from World War II American Food Rationing. I'll be talking about some parallels between today's current events and rationing in World War II. And I'll also be featuring another wartime cookbook called Kitchen Strategy. Before long, I think we're going to be sick of hearing about the COVID-19 virus, um, if you aren't already. But as things have been developing, I just got a stronger and stronger feeling that I needed to record this episode. You know, for some time, I've tried to figure out if wartime rationing could be applied in modern times successfully. And I came to the conclusion that no, no, it couldn't. Just in our modern culture and political climate, I just don't think it would work. But now it's kind of weird to think that the possibility of something like that is a bit closer to reality. I think we've got a ways to go before we'd have something like food rationing, like on the national level. But in this climate, it's much easier to imagine how it might look. Just the other night, it was March 16th, I was listening to the World radio program. Um, It was nighttime. I was on my way to the grocery store to see what could be had. And I was listening to host Marco Werman interviewing Nicholas Burns, a former NATO ambassador who said that, quote, in a way, this crisis could ultimately have an impact as serious as a world war in terms of the number of people affected, in terms of the impact on the economy and on people's way of life. And so there has to be a local response as well as a global response, end quote. And that really got my attention. Um, I remember sitting in my car and saying out loud, no way. (laughs) At the beginning of this crisis where uh, people were starting to stock up on food and there was long lines and um, I started in my mind forming some parallels and because I've been just delving so deeply into this World War II research for this podcast, I just just started make, like connecting dots and saying, wow, there's a lot of uh, similarities here. And I kind of was reaching out to other people, some friends of mine saying, do you see this too? Like I thought maybe I was kind of making a stretch to make it fit. <laughs> but then just today, and today's March 18th, um, President Trump was making statements referring to himself as a wartime president and saying, quote, Every generation of Americans has been called to make shared sacrifices for the good of the nation. To this day, nobody has ever seen like it what they were able to do during World War II. Now it's our time. We must sacrifice together because we are all in this together, and we will come through together. It's the invisible enemy. That's always the toughest enemy, the invisible enemy, end quote. When people make statements like that, it can kind of make World War II historians go a little crazy. <laughs> like, whoa! Um, and then we've been hearing about President Trump instituting the Defense Production Act, 
to turn factories over to quote unquote wartime production. My friends have been sending me links about certain factories turning over to make hand sanitizer instead of perfume. And the latest is Tesla saying that they'll make ventilators. It's just a really unique time that we have on our hands here to compare now with what our grandparents had to go through. Just really fascinating. I've talked to a few historically minded people whose thoughts in light of current events have turned to World War II, like mine, and the similarity between that time and ours. And they, like myself, feel instinctively that there are many lessons to be learned from the World War II experience of our grandparents that we can apply to our situation now. And I was just in my um, Facebook group, Wartime Rationing Recipes and Cookbooks, and there's a lot of talk on there, too, about them seeing the similarities and in some parts of our country they're having a harder time getting food than others and so just the you know wartime rationing is just really heavily on their minds i i feel like those of us who are always thinking about wartime cooking you know it's just our minds immediately go there like there are solutions to be found here so i thought i would share some of those ideas with you And I would love to hear your feedback. You can contact me on Instagram or through my blog. Even if you'd like to join in our uh, Facebook group, that would be great too. And I will leave all those links um, in the podcast description. Okay, so these are the differences that I see. World War II led the U.S. out of the Great Depression. It was a boom time for the economy But today, it's kind of the opposite. Instead of them wanting you to get out and work, do your part by um, activity and industry, we're being asked to stay home (laughs) and not to go to work for the safety of everyone. So we're isolated and in many cases can't go to work. And then on the radio, I've heard news talking about the strong possibility of another recession. Those are the differences that I've noticed. The similarities, though... How many of you have had to stand in lines at the store lately? I have. Probably everyone has. And I'm sure the lines are worse in some areas than in others. I'm split between a medium-sized city of Frederick, Maryland, and a smaller rural town. And I've gone to both stores in both areas. And um, it's, it's even a little bit different from store to store that way. Also, there's localized rationing. Have you seen signs limiting how many of a certain item you can buy? I've seen it for paper products like toilet paper and tissues, pasta sauce, pasta, frozen veggies, baking supplies like flour. All the canned goods are gone and popcorn. I was surprised by that, but I guess I shouldn't because if everyone's going to be watching a lot of Netflix, got to have the popcorn, I guess. Um, So this is partly because demand is so high and because there isn't enough labor to restock the shelves. And partly because of hoarding and panic. And if you've listened to the episodes about sugar rationing and coffee rationing, we talked a little bit about the hoarding that happened, especially with coffee. The hoarding and panic was a real problem that they had then, especially towards the start of rationing. And it's something that we're seeing now. But studying World War II rationing, I I do have hope that things will calm down. Because things did calm down for Americans 
after they got used to their situation. So there's some hope there. This experience that we're having is very similar to what they experienced in World War II, where you'd go to the store and you just never knew what would be on the shelf, even though you had ration points and money to buy everything with, it didn't mean that what you needed to buy would be on the shelf. So I wanted to perform a little thought exercise. What if 1940s era rationing were imposed today? So we're going to treat this like sugar rationing back in May of 1942. People had to report how much sugar they had in their cupboards. So if you just barely stocked up for the canning season, you would not have received ration book one depending on how much sugar you had. And then when coffee was rationed later, the coupons used for sugar would have been torn out. The example that I'm going to use today is milk, just because milk is near and dear to me and my daughter and almond milk for the rest of my family. My two sons, one of which has a dairy intolerance and my husband. So let's say tomorrow milk was going to be rationed. I've seen All the fridges cleared out of milk lately, so I thought this was another good reason for this example. So we would need to report all the milk in our fridge and on our shelves. Self-reliance and emergency preparedness is huge in my church culture, so having an emergency stock of food, whether it's a week, a month, or even some people stock a whole year, this helps in case of a natural disaster, loss of a job, or a prolonged illness that keeps someone from working. So it's not just for the preppers preparing for an apocalypse. Um, it's, it's for very practical reasons. So on my shelf, I have some powdered milk, evaporated milk, and shelf-stable almond milk. In my fridge, I have a couple gallons of milk and some gallons of almond milk, like the fresh kind. So I think I've got a pretty decent supply of milk for now. Though for my daughter, two gallons of milk would only last her a few days. (laughs) It's a problem and we're working on it. Um, I would report all of my milk and based on that, I might not be given a milk ration booklet or maybe some stamps taken out for the two week period, let's say that the ration book was good for. So this would even out the field for everyone who doesn't have milk, therefore allowing the limited milk supply to be spread more evenly. And so I was thinking in this thought exercise, So I was thinking to make our milk last, I'd have to ration everyone to their daily allowance for milk, which is two to three cups or 24 ounces per day, maybe less. For all the other milk, like powdered, canned, I'm talking like evaporated milk and shelf-stable almond milk, I'd use that for my baking instead of the fresh stuff. (sighs) That would be tough for my family especially my little boy who can only drink almond milk. He's three and he wouldn't really understand if he had to go without or with less because he likes to have big almond milk. That's what he calls it. Um, I know that in wartime, if we're talking about like wartime, they did make allowances for a greater supply of type, certain types of food for pregnant mothers, nursing mothers, and children and babies. So at the end of this thought exercise, it really helped me understand better the kind of situations that these wartime housewives had to go through. You know, Americans are so used to their diet. Even back then, they just they had their certain diet that they liked and they would get it for many people, not everyone. And then all of a sudden not having that, it was very difficult. And I could finally understand that 
in a way I couldn't understand before just because of the, you know, the current climate. And I think this is a very valuable tool that we can use to put ourselves in their shoes. And I think by doing that, it actually helps us more. All right. So what are the biggest lessons that we learned from wartime rationing? Now, this isn't going to be a lecture. I came to these ideas with myself in mind, just thinking I've been trying to analyze my feelings as I've gone to the stores, seen things missing. It's been interesting to watch like what is gone um, and what hasn't come back yet. (laughs) So the first one is attitude. Kind of like I talked about before, the American mentality that we get what we want when we want it. We might need to accept substitutions, do without, and simplify while keeping up a positive patient attitude. Now, even back then, they were not perfect at that. (laughs) There was the panic and the hoarding. And when the ration book two came out with all the other things being rationed, uh, there was a lot of confusion and it just, it'll take some time. But I think as long as we have that positive patient attitude, it'll make it easier. All right. The second thing was taking stock of what we already have and use it, including stuff lurking in the back of our cupboards and fridges. I'm definitely saying this with me in mind because I tend to surface shop my cupboards (laughs) when I'm making, you know, menus and planning dinner. Um, And I kind of forget what's in the back maybe even just making an inventory of our shelves to see what do we have, lay it all out, what can we menu plan. I think planning menus could be another lesson in here just to make things last and stretch as much as possible. A lot of wartime cookbooks talk about meal planning and give lots of suggestions. One of my cookbooks, The Health for Victory Club Meal Planning Guide from July 1943 gives some tips about how to organize what they call your most important job. One of their tips is to plan your meals a week at a time. Each of these cookbooks in the Health for Victory Club series features an entire month's worth of menus and then all the recipes in the back so that you can make these menus. And they say that the best way to make sure you balance food values and ration points is to sit down and plan your menus for at least a week in advance. This simplifies your marketing, gives you a chance to check your menus to make sure you've included each of the basic seven foods needed daily, and it helps you make thrifty use of leftovers too. This is no time to waste food, remember. I think this last tip is especially poignant for us today, Um, making thrifty use of our leftovers and anything lurking in the back of the cupboards, like I mentioned before. Another idea that I had was get creative with restrictions. (laughs) So just for what I noticed on the store shelves where I live, you know, no toilet paper to be had. But I did find Kleenex. And you know what, guys? You can use Kleenex as toilet paper. Another idea I had was whipping cream. I don't know if there's a great call for whipping cream right now, but it sure can be made into butter, which is non-existent right now. You can also try a new flower that you haven't tried before. I've noticed all the white flour is gone, but they I have noticed other flowers like cornmeal and amaranth flower. Like there's all kinds of flowers to try out there. It just might be different than what we're used to. You can also bake with a different sweetener. There might be a lot of molasses out there, guys, but not as much white sugar. So 
Um, so yeah, get creative. And if you need some more time recipes, I can definitely help you out there. <laughs> All right. The other thing I thought of was self-rationing. And I'm thinking of this with, with my poor daughter in mind and her milk, um, rationing her to smaller cups per day. She'd drink it all day long till the cows came home and then drink some more when the cows got there, <laughs> I think. I love her. She reminds me of myself at that age and my love of milk. But besides milk, <laughs> there are other things like things that we love to eat, things that are on our shelves, you know, rationing out, like portioning out what we've got. Another thing is learning a new skill, like baking from scratch, making soup, using meat bones to make bone broth, using leftovers and food scraps. And I'm saying all of these with myself in mind. A while ago, I was scared of soups. I know that sounds crazy, but I just felt like my soups never turned out. And so over time, as I've practiced, I've gotten better at soups until I can make a pretty decent soup. But that was a skill. That was a skill I had to learn. And even in wartime in the 1940s, women had to learn these skills, learn how to bake from scratch, make soup, be thrifty with meat cuts and things. It was all new skills to a lot of women even then. Another idea I had was use the stuff not as many people want. The first thing that came to mind was margarine. Um, When I went to the store, all the butter was gone every single scrap except the really expensive stuff like Kerrygold. I was tempted, but I didn't do it. <laughs> but what I did see was margarine. I usually don't buy margarine because I'm not a huge fan of what's in it. And so I usually stick to butter, but I was just looking at it and I was thinking of wartime cooking. And I told myself, you know what? I'm doing this. I'm buying this margarine that's 87 cents a box with four sticks in it. This is going to be awesome. Another item I thought of that I bought in the cereal, the cereal aisles have not been cleared out where I live. They've actually got quite a variety left, but I bought shredded wheat, which nobody had touched and grape nuts, which surprisingly somebody had bought some boxes. I don't know who they are, but, but I happen to have a cookbook that uses those cereals to make other things. It's a 19... 40 cookbook by Kate Smith, who was a famous singer back then. And she's got some great recipes in there using grape nuts. When I went the first time to the store and all the meat was gone from chicken to ground beef, gone, except for a section in the middle, chicken livers fully stocked. And I really laughed kind of hard at that because I understand. But because of my wartime cooking experience, I, I know what to do with chicken livers. I didn't buy any, but it, it brought me comfort that it was still there. And I bet if I go back, it will still be there. <laughs> All right. My last food idea is, this is going to sound crazy, guys, but chicken feet. If you can go to an Asian market or maybe even a Mexican market, they might have chicken feet there. Chicken feet and veggie scraps make the most killer chicken broth you've ever had. If you're able to get a hold of that and make some broth, as you watch it cooking, you might think, what the heck am I doing? I can't believe this is in my pot. But at the end, I promise you, it will be amazing and it will be worth it. So thinking a little outside the box there. All right, well, my last tip is 
thinking of in wartime, wartime bonds, donating to the Red Cross, there were a lot of things that they were being asked to give their money to, um, to help out the war effort. And so in today's situation, I am going to implore you, please support and donate to your local food bank. It had not even occurred to me until I was at the store buying something at a different time. Um, It was the margarine drip. That's when it was. And as I was walking out, I saw a box thing to donate to the local food bank. And I was, I just stopped and I was like, oh, oh yeah, there are a lot of people who can't go to work. And for them, that is their financial security and that is going away. It's so important that we give what we can for these people who aren't able to buy food. Um, So give what you can. I have a very special place in my heart for the food bank because I remember my mom taking me there when I was a kid a few times And I just remember feeling really happy that we could go there and get food. Not that I ever went hungry or anything, but my mom used every possible way she could to make sure we were fed. And I I don't remember ever being hungry. So I'm grateful to her for that. And I'm so grateful for the resources that she had, that she was able to go and make sure we had food to eat. So find your local food bank and do what you can. Right. Well, it would not be a complete Victory Kitchen podcast episode without a cookbook, now would it? So today I am featuring the cookbook called Kitchen Strategy. What? Why? How to feed your family? Yes, there's all those question marks in the title. (laughs) This cookbook is more than just a cookbook. It's another cookbook that has a whole section on uh, nutrition menu planning, even menus for common ailments, strategic buying, cooking, and serving. And then finally, towards the end of the book, it's got the the recipes. And I picked this cookbook because of its very poignant forward and sections in this book that I feel really apply to today in our current global crisis situation. This cookbook was written by Leona M. Bayer, M.D., and Edith S. Green, B.A. The foreword says, Just as the American mother and housewife was becoming acutely aware of the importance of good diet, the impact of the war made her problem at the same time immeasurably more difficult and more urgent to solve. Everyone realizes the special role of diet in maintaining health and efficiency under wartime pressures. But now that the need is most pressing, rationing and shortages so complicate the picture that only an easygoing understanding of essentials can assure the skill necessary to plan adequate meals. One must know not only the recommended daily food items, but also how to substitute for them when they are not available. With the help of the dietetic fundamentals gathered in this book, the housewife should be able to do a superior job of feeding her family despite wartime restrictions. The outline showing the usual dietetic Routines for Ordinary Ailments is a most valuable section in the present emergency. Everywhere in civilian life, there exists a shortage of doctors. The suggestions in this book for handling the dietetic aspects of minor illnesses are safe and generally accepted. 
As a supplement to medical advice, they can save the physician the time often needlessly spent in giving detailed dietary instructions. I anticipate that the book will bring new food for thought and new thoughts for food to many a family table. Ernest Wolf, MD, Chief of Pediatrics at Mount Zion Hospital, San Francisco. This part about the everywhere in civilian life there exists a shortage of doctors, and so they include this section with um, diet suggestions for common ailments. That really struck me because I've just been hearing on the radio that a lot of medical personnel and hospitals are overwhelmed. And it was just like that then that there was a shortage of doctors. And so by handling as much as you could on your own, just using diet, that really freed up them from having to always be recommending diet instructions. For the book's introduction, on the left is an illustration of a housewife wearing trousers and in an apron with a cat and dog looking on, incidentally, <laughs> juggling a baby's milk bottle, a lunchbox, a book about vitamins, a ration book, money. And she's juggling these things with a very worried look on her face. <laughs> in the introduction, it says... Although wartime has made cooking so much more difficult, strategy in the kitchen remains the same. It must still aim to convert modern knowledge of nutrition into good eating habits for the family. It is our belief that enjoyable meals provide the direct approach to better diet and thence to better health. The up-to-date mother needs more than ever to be dietitian, tactician, economist, hostess, juggler, and chef. More often than not, she is doing outside work in addition to her household duties. This book is conceived as a kind of kitchen primer, giving such information about the various aspects of her job as will conserve her energy and increase her effectiveness. I also like this part towards the end of the introduction that says, material for the book came from many sources. It is a supplement to ordinary cookbooks and a guide to their use. Some of the recipes are so simple that they are not always found in conventional books. Others are especially adapted to the needs and pleasures of childhood. Others are devoted to substitutions. The section on dietetic management of ordinary illnesses should be helpful in maintaining health on the home front. The accent of this book is on pointing the way to high nutritional standards through the skillful use of foods which are palatable, attractive, still available, and inexpensive. So it was really, I like that they say that it's a, a supplement to ordinary cookbooks. Just kind of as a guide to make sure people are getting the proper nutrition. I mean, we have to keep in mind, this book was written by a doctor. Nutrition in wartime was emphasized a lot because if the population is healthy, then they're able to go to work and not have sick days. A healthy population is a happy population. That's really important emphasis even today. So that hasn't changed much. <laughs> um, the recipes that I wanted to focus on are sandwich recipes. Um, I will be doing a podcast episode all about wartime lunches, but sandwiches right now in today's climate, sandwiches are easy and they can be made with all sorts of things. The one I wanted to focus on, well, there's several sandwiches I wanted to focus on, but one of them is liverwurst or Braunschweiger, however you call it. But like it says here in this cookbook, Liverwurst is not restricted and may be used in many combinations, which is very true. Um, I taught a homeschool co-op class about wartime rationing, 
and it was a cooking class. On the very last day, we had a sandwich filling challenge. The week before, I had the kids choose which sandwich fillings that that they wanted to make or that they wanted to try, but they were picking the ones for the opposite team, knowing that they would probably have to try them too. So I thought that they would go easy on each other, but no, they picked no less than four liver sandwich fillings all combined. And I was so shocked and kind of appalled that I had to cook some beef liver again. Um, That's not my favorite thing. But one of the recipes used liverwurst. Now, if you've never had liverwurst, it's, it's really not that bad. It's not as bad as it sounds. I have a few stories about liverwurst, but I won't go into those right now. Um, but I did grow up eating it on salting crackers. It was kind of a treat that my dad got. So it didn't scare me to try liverwurst. And it tastes kind of like a spicy bologna that's been ground up in a, into a paste. So for the liverwurst sandwich, you um, take the liverwurst, mash up, mash it up, mix in a little mayonnaise, and I think it also had some minced up onion and celery, and you spread that on a sandwich. And the kids actually that tried it liked this one. So if the kids, these were teenagers, if the teenagers are eating it, then you don't have to be afraid to try this one. The other sandwich I wanted to talk about is a sandwich I grew up eating and loving. This might scare some people, but I'm pretty sure I've seen these two things on the shelves at the stores. Peanut butter and Miracle Whip. That's right, folks. Peanut butter and Miracle Whip sandwiches. I especially like it with iceberg lettuce for an extra little crunch. And it is historically documented in that I found in the 1930s. Peanut butter and mayonnaise were a thing. And I know Miracle is not mayonnaise, but my mom hated mayonnaise. So growing up, we ate Miracle And But she said that her mom made peanut butter and Miracle sandwiches when she was growing up. So this is a handed down family recipe. This is what you do. You take your bread, peanut butter on both sides, kind of thinly-ish. Is that a word? <laughs> thinly spread. And then Miracle a little bit thicker. Then you spread the peanut butter on one side. And then iceberg lettuce. You're probably all cringing right now. But the interesting thing about the peanut butter with the Miracle is that the peanut butter makes the Miracle taste a little bit sweeter than it would normally taste. And it's absolutely delicious. But don't take my word for it. Give it a try. If neither of those things are up your alley... I will have some more sandwich recipes on my blog that you can try. Especially one of my absolute favorites, mock chicken salad sandwich. Is that what it's called? Mock chicken salad. No, mock chicken sandwich. (laughs) Anyway, it'll be there. It's good. In closing, I just wanted to say that, you know, we don't really know how long we'll be affected by the current situation, just like in World War II. They had no idea how long it was going to last. Times got better. They got worse. They got better again. But they learned to pull together and get the job done. And we can too. Well, that's it for the podcast episode today. Thanks so much for listening. And I will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.